title of the message is The Disciples' Comfort. When I mention the word comfort, I can imagine that each of our minds draws a very different picture of what comfort means. My wife and I were recently in Florida. For many, the idea of comfort in Florida, at least in a physical sense, would be sitting on the beach, maybe the sand in their toes, getting some of that sun, soaking it in. That is comfort to many people as they think of Florida, they think of the beach. Well, your pastor is not one of those people. I greatly disfavor sand. It's not so much that I mind sitting in the sun with the sand in my toes, but rather the sand coming out of my ears and coming out of my nose and in my mouth for the next two weeks, which really is the, the length and breadth of what happens when you're around sand. When I would drive my car with some other guys to the beach when I was down in Florida, I would get back to campus and for the next two weeks I'd be vacuuming sand out of my car. That's just what sand is. It gets everywhere. It's in everything. You just can't get rid of sand. So, so sand to me is not the picture of comfort. To me, comfort would be perhaps a cool mountaintop with a stream, solitude, quiet. To me, that's comfortable. Sounds far more comfortable than a sandy beach. So comfort doesn't always mean the same thing to everybody. You know, the same may be true regarding our emotions, our spirit. Sometimes my wife simply needs a big hug. And I'll give her a big hug, and whatever was wrong with her is now no longer wrong with her. She feels great now that she's gotten a big hug. Well, your pastor is not that way. When I am at a place where I'm perhaps discouraged, or when I need comfort, I don't need a big hug. As a matter of fact, I need the exact opposite. Please just give me some time. I'll be okay, just give me some time. Now, it might be good to talk with someone It might be good to talk things out, whatever the case may be, but I I definitely don't want a big hug. So emotionally, comfort might be different. Physically, our ideas of comfort might be different. But for disciples of Jesus Christ, there are some elements that will, regardless of our personalities, regardless of our emotions, regardless of um, our thoughts as far as physical comfort, there are some things spiritually that will comfort us. For the spirit of man, comfort is much more uniformly defined than perhaps the physical or emotional part of a man. All men need the comfort that Jesus Christ brings. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of entering into these comforts as we lovingly submit ourselves to Him. It's been a day of discipleship as we've had some weeks of discipleship lately, and this evening will be certainly no different. And so this evening, as we look in John 14, we're going to see four ways that the Holy Spirit brings comfort to disciples of Jesus Christ. Four of them this evening, as we walk through verses 15 through, 20, uh, through 31 excuse me, of John 14. And the first way that the Holy Spirit brings comfort is comfort of victory over sin. The Holy Spirit brings the comfort of victory over sin. Look with me at verses 15 through 17 of John 14. Jesus Christ speaking, He says, If you love me, keep my commandments. 
And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Jesus begins in verse 15 with the definitive command. We've seen it before, we'll see it again. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. Now, Jesus is not teaching here, and we've talked about this before, nor is it taught anywhere in Scripture that if you commit sin, you lose your salvation. Or if you commit sin, you do not love God. We know that all men are sinners, and that we will not be free from this temptation of sin until the day we stand in glory. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning, as we talked about discipleship, as we talked about Romans 6, as we talked about Romans 7, Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 5. The reality that in this life we will be battling our flesh, that our body is dead in sin, though our spirit is quickened. And then we remember from Romans chapter 8, Paul teaching that the, this spirit that is within us, that is alive unto Christ, can and is able to quicken our bodies so that our bodies may be able to do that which our spirit desires to do, and that is please God. But the general principle, and that is the general principle that we see that Jesus Christ gives here, is really the foundation for a successful Christian life, the foundation for successful discipleship, and it is this, that if you love Jesus Christ, that love will be expressed through a clear desire and purposed effort unto obedience. That's what we saw in 2 Corinthians 5. As Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth us. It brings us along. It pulls us toward Christ. It pulls us into obedience. The love of Christ constraineth us. Now, what we can draw from this is that the man who feels no compulsion and makes no effort at obeying the Word of God is not a man who loves God. The man who never feels a compulsion to obey the Word of God, the man who has no drawing unto God, the man who has no desire or effort toward obedience is not the man that loves God. As we labor upon this earth as disciples of Jesus Christ, seeking actively to deny the flesh, however, it's not just us. I mentioned it already. We have an advocate, and Jesus Christ mentions an advocate here in verse 16. Here he says that he will send another comforter. If you have a King James Bible, I'm not sure how it is in other translations, but in the King James Bible, that word comforter is capitalized. That's because the King James translators, and rightly so, recognized this promised comforter to be the Holy Spirit. And so they capitalized the word in order to show that this is not just a description, but is in fact a name. It is the comforter, the Holy Spirit. That word in the Greek literally means helper, intercessor, or advocate. It speaks of one who comes alongside us and makes up the difference in our deficiencies. Where we lack in our ability to do right, the Holy Spirit makes up the difference. Exactly what Romans chapter 8 said. Exactly this concept of the Spirit that is within us quickening the body as the Spirit is already alive in Christ. And so... As we endeavor in this life to deny the lust of the flesh, to deny the lust of the eyes, to deny the pride of life, we do not face this battle 
alone. We have the spirit of truth, which is within us. Now, verse 17 tells us that the world cannot receive this spirit because they do not see, nor do they know God. The world has no ability to have victory over sin. The world cannot receive this comforter. It has no ability to receive the benefits of the Spirit of Truth because the Spirit of Truth is not in them. It says, It seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But those of you who have recognized your need for salvation, who have responded to that need by humbling yourself before God and placing your faith in Jesus Christ unto eternal life, not only know this Spirit, but the Bible teaches very clearly, clearly excuse me, that this Spirit indwells you. So the comfort that is found in this Spirit, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, is tremendous. I've given you an illustration about Florida already. Let's give you one more. Florida is a state that has only two seasons. You know, here we have summer and fall, winter and spring. Generally speaking, you can distinguish between them. Well, in Florida, there's two seasons. There's rain or there's shine. That's all you get. You get rain or you get sunshine, and there's nothing really in between. While it's called the sunshine, sunshine state, that's the Florida motto, the sunshine state, quite honestly, it could just as easily be called the downpour state. Now, there are states, like Minnesota, where rain can come steady and consistent all day. You can have a little drizzle, steady rain, and that steady rain could go on for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, a couple hours. It's not really that way in Florida. At least in Pensacola, it's not really that way. It comes, it comes hard, it comes fast, it floods everything, and then it leaves. I remember one day my friend and I, this was many years ago, were walking to class. I'd never experienced anything like this before. We were walking to class and we heard a rumbling. And after that rumbling, we heard the sound of girls screaming. We were a little confused. Rumbling, girls screaming. We looked behind us, and literally there was a sheet of rain moving toward us. It was, you could physically see the sheet of rain coming toward you. And we ran. We ran as hard as we could. We ran as fast as we could because we were unprepared for that rain. See, it hadn't been raining. It was cloudy but it hadn't been raining all day. We didn't have an umbrella. We didn't have a raincoat. We had a lot of books in our hands that could have gotten very soggy if we weren't careful, and so we ran. We were comfortless in our time of need because that need came upon us so suddenly. But the reality of the Holy Spirit indwelling is that regardless of where you are, regardless of what you're doing, regardless of how tired you are, regardless of your circumstances, the disciple of Jesus Christ is able, through the power and the advocacy of the Holy Spirit, to keep God's commandments. Even when you're caught off guard, you have the Holy Spirit. I didn't have an umbrella when I was caught off guard. I didn't have a raincoat when I was caught off guard. I had no means by which to protect myself from the rain except to run for my life. Not really my life, but you know. Felt that way at the time. But we have an advocate. And he's with us all the time. And see, that's a comfort because that means we can have victory over sin. 
That means we can obey the Word of God because the Holy Spirit won't leave. Comfort of the Holy Spirit in victory over sin. Second, the Holy Spirit gives comfort of Christ's sure return. Comfort of Christ's sure return. Look with me in verse 18 through 20. Jesus Christ speaking, He says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Jesus Christ says, I shall not leave you comfortless. This is a different word from the word just above. The word comforter is that word meaning intercessor or advocate. In in verse 18, we have an entirely different word here in um, in the Greek that's translated comfortless in our King James Bibles. It is, in fact, used exclusively in our Greek, uh, in the classical Greek, to describe a child who has no parents. In fact, the word orphanos in the Greek is the word by which we get the word orphan in our English language. And so when Jesus Christ says, I will not leave you comfortless, and then he appends that with, I will come unto you, of course, we know he won't leave them comfortless because he will send the comforter, but that's not what Jesus Christ is speaking of in verse 18. In verse 18, Jesus Christ is saying, I will send you someone to comfort you until I come back. I will not leave you without my comfort. I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you orphaned. I will not leave you without the comfort of family. You know, two centuries ago, it was not unusual to see a family in the United States where men would leave their families for years on end and travel out west to a piece of land that the government had given them that if they could homestead it and if they could get the land up and running, then it would be given to them. If they could make it go, it was theirs. They would get the land, they would build a house, they would work the land, they would establish a life, and then once all of that was finished, they would then return, come back for their family, and they would bring their family with them after they had established a life out west. As this father would leave, his family knew very well that he was not abandoning them. They did not, the day he left, say, I have no father. Or, my father abandoned my family. They would say nothing of the sort. They did not regard themselves as fatherless because he had gone away to provide for them a home and they knew that he would return. And when he returned, they would go and live with him in their home. This is the promise that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples. His departure was not abandonment. It was Preparation. We've talked about that already. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. They are not going to be orphaned. Christ says, I will not leave you orphaned. They're simply awaiting His return. And on that day, the day when Jesus Christ returns, the day that is in part this memorial that we will keep tonight through the Lord's Supper as we remember what He did do on the cross in the spilling of blood and the giving of His body. And He says, this do ye in remembrance of Me. And He says, as often as ye 
eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do demonstrate, show the Lord's death till he come. It's a remembrance, a memorial, but it is as well an expectation because we partake until he comes because he's coming. And, and we have the comfort that he is coming. And now we who have the comforter, the Holy Spirit with us, know that Jesus is in the Father and that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us and that this will mean that we will have a heavenly home. So the Holy Spirit, the comforter, gives the comfort of victory over sin. The Holy Spirit gives the comfort of Christ's sure return. Third, the Holy Spirit gives comfort of present understanding. Comfort of present understanding. Look with me in verse 21. We'll read through verse 26. Jesus still speaking. He says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. For the second time in our passage, Jesus directly links love and obedience. Yet now, this time, Jesus Christ elaborates further upon the fruit or the reward of obedience to God. He says, the man who obeys God is a man loved of the Father. Verse 21, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him. And notice he says at the end, and will manifest myself to him. This is very important. Get that phrase, and will manifest myself to him. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying here. What Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not advocating a works-based salvation. He is not saying that the only people that receive the love of God unto salvation are those who obey him. That if you obey him, then God will love you. If you disobey him, then God will not love you. Therefore, you are not saved unless you regularly obey him. Jesus is not advocating a works-based salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If I can work my way to heaven, or if I can work my way out of heaven, then there must be some merit by which I end up in heaven, and I have no merit by which to end up in heaven. It's only Christ's merit that will see me rejoicing with him in heaven. That cannot be what Jesus Christ is saying here. Jesus Christ is also not advocating Reformed theology here. That God's love is exclusive to an elect group of people and that God's love is placed only upon those who would persevere unto the end in good works. Jesus is not saying that here. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. The world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Rather, 
Jesus is connecting God's love and God's revelation. I told you to remember that phrase. And I will manifest myself to him. Remember that phrase. You see the direct link between the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the manifestation of the Son. Let me read to you verse 21 again. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And how do we know that the key to this verse, that the point that Jesus is making is the manifestation, not the love? We know this because of Judas's question in the next verse. How is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? How could this be that you will manifest yourself unto us and not unto the world? See, it's about the manifestation. Jesus says, I will manifest myself unto him. Jesus is saying here that the man who obeys the word of God is a man who will have the pleasure of knowing, understanding, and abiding more intimately with Jesus Christ. He'll be a disciple. Psalm 1 puts it this way. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree, planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. It's the same message. Judas, one of the twelve, did not quite understand this. This is not Judas Iscariot. How could Jesus manifest himself to his disciples without also manifesting himself to the world. Again, this is where the Comforter comes in. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. See, because we have something that the world doesn't have. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and the Holy Spirit does not indwell the world. And so, the manifestation of Jesus Christ in us is through the Spirit that is in us. So when Jesus Christ promises that He will manifest Himself to us, He's not promising that we will see something externally that the world cannot see, but rather that the Holy Spirit that is within us will reveal something to us that the world cannot understand. The man who loves Jesus and therefore obeys Jesus will be the recipient of the fruits of righteousness. We often call them the fruits of the Spirit, which will more intimately connect him with God the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. When James was writing, he put it this way in James 4, verses 8-10. through 10, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. See, James's exhortation to the believers that he was writing to in his epistle was this. If you draw nigh to God, He will draw nigh to you. If you obey God, if you cleanse your hands of your sin, 
if you weep and mourn, if you humble yourself before God, God will lift you up and God will manifest himself to you and you will draw nigh to God as, uh, excuse me, he will draw nigh to you as you draw nigh to him. That's discipleship. See, the salvation which we have is not simply fire insurance. It is the distinct privilege as well as the responsibility of every believer to draw nigh unto God through obedience and through righteousness. And as we do so, the scriptures tell us that God will draw nigh unto us. That according to verse 26 in this passage, which is confirmed to all believers in 1 John 2.27, the Comforter will teach us all things and help us to properly apply these truths to our lives as we seek Him diligently. We will receive the spiritual comfort of understanding the character of God, and then by extension, the will of God. We will bear the fruit of that understanding in our lives, in our families, in our church, and in our communities. That's the message. The message is we draw nigh unto Him, he draws nigh into us. The Holy Spirit teaches us, manifests the truth unto us, illuminates the Scriptures unto us, and as He illuminates the Scriptures unto us, we live out those Scriptures in our lives. We bear the fruit of the Spirit, and bearing the fruit of the Spirit overflows into our lives and our families and our church, our communities, and this world. The Holy Spirit gives the comfort of victory over sin. The Holy Spirit gives the comfort of Christ's sure return. The Holy Spirit gives the comfort of present understanding. Fourth and finally this evening, in verses 27 through 31, the Holy Spirit gives the comfort of true peace while Jesus tarries. True peace while Jesus tarries. Look with me in verse 27. Jesus says, Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before, it come to pass. Excuse me, that when it has come to pass, you might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh, and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. All of these comforts have been wonderful, have they not? The comfort of personal victory over sin, the hope of eternal life with Christ and His sure return, a true knowledge of God upon this earth through the application of the Word of God to our hearts by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. But you know, none of these comforts solve the problem of wickedness in this world. We labor. We pray. We obey. We hope. We study. We learn. But we still face the trials and the tribulations that come from living in a world that loves darkness rather than light. We still face the tribulations and trials and the difficulties that come from a sin-sick world. 
What's the answer to this problem in the heart of believers? How is it that as we live in a world of wickedness, we are not overcome by this world? How is it that we do not fall into fits of terrible depression when we think about the wickedness of this world? When we think about the direction this world is going in? When we see wicked men prevail, prosper, as Job has often lamented in our series in the morning service. The answer to this problem is peace. See, one day Jesus Christ is coming and He will bear the title Prince of Peace. And on that day when He establishes His throne upon this earth, He will rule and reign in righteousness and there will be physical, tangible peace on this earth. When the angels announced the birth of Jesus Christ, they said, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. But until the day when Jesus Christ establishes peace, He gave us another means of peace. Philippians 4.7 calls it the peace of God that passeth all understanding. And it's a peace which, according to that verse, keeps our hearts and our minds through Christ Jesus. This is not a peace that will necessarily be found in the world around us. This peace will never, we will never be brought unto a place where we usher the kingdom into this world and there will be peace on earth as we all learn to be better Christians. That's not what Christ promises on this, in this age for us. He promises a peace that is rooted in our hearts and in our minds through Christ Jesus. How do we have this peace? How do we obtain this peace? How do we secure this peace? How do we maintain this peace? As we abide in Jesus, as we obey Jesus' commandments, the peace of God through the comfort of the Holy Spirit keeps our hearts and minds. And so Jesus Christ tells these disciples in verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. And he says it's not the world's peace. It's not the kind of peace that's affected through a treaty. It's not the kind of peace where two selfish men sit at a table for hours trying to figure out how they can get the best deal and get their way and still, without compromising too much, find some means by which they don't have to shoot each other across a fence. That's not the kind of peace Jesus Christ has promised. Jesus Christ has not promised that sort of physical, tangible, fluctuating, tentative peace. He's promised us a peace which will not leave us, but which will be left with us. So He tells His disciples, My peace I leave with you. It's not a worldly peace. It's not conditioned upon circumstances. Our comfort is not hanging upon a thread, which if somebody snips that thread, we lose all comfort. Our comfort is not based upon the circumstances that surround us. It's not based upon what people do to us. It's not based upon these things. It's not physical in that sense. It's a spiritual peace. 
It transcends circumstances. It transcends difficulties. It transcends the pain and the sorrow and the vulnerability of this life. Remember, it's only a peace found through the Holy Spirit. He is promising a peace found in the Comforter that should come. What does that mean? It means that this peace is not found on the psychologist's couch. Unless that psychologist is opening the Word of God and reading to you John 14. It means that this is a peace that is not found through the tangible means by which men try to find peace. It's not found through alcohol. It's not found through prescription drugs. It's not found in money. It's not found in a good family. It's not found in a good social status. It means that these places are not the places to find peace. Because the peace comes with the comforter. This comfort, however, would not come right away. Jesus Christ warned the disciples that it would not come right away. He tells them that complete devotion to His Word and the message of His Word would cause them to rejoice in His departure. But they won't rejoice in His departure, will they? Notice what He says there. If you loved Me, you would rejoice. He says, I'm going away, and if you loved Me, you would rejoice. The Greek has a tremendous insight into conditional statements. I wasn't even going to go here, but I'm going to. There are five different classes of conditions in the Greek. First class, second class, third class, fourth class, and fifth class conditions, believe it or not. And each condition has a different nuance to it. And depending upon the word that's used to to describe the if, the condition, and depending upon the tense in which the verb is found that the condition contains, you have a different class of condition. And that class indicate something about the assumption that the person's making when he is giving that condition. Let me give you an example in the English. I'm going to use a condition to state the example about a condition. If I were to say something to the effect of, if I had gone to the baseball game today, it would have been a great game because the Twins absolutely trounced the other team. Now, when I said that, I gave it conditionally. Brady. Did I go to the Twins game today? No. Did you know from the way I framed my conditional statement that I did not go to the Twins game today? You did, because I said, if I had gone. In other words, I didn't go, but if I had, I would have seen a great game because the Twins demolished the other team. But I didn't. And so I can give different classes of conditions, even in the English, whereby I can insinuate whether something is going to happen or isn't going to happen, should happen or shouldn't happen, and it's the same in the Greek. And here we have a second-class condition. And by a second-class condition, when Jesus Christ makes this statement, he is assuming it to be untrue. That doesn't mean it is unequivocally going to be untrue, but he assumes it to be untrue. And so when he says, if you loved me, you would rejoice, he assumes that they're not going to rejoice because they don't yet understand. Because they won't have this comfort and this rejoicing until the Comforter comes. Until the Holy Spirit 
illuminates their dim eyes to exactly what's happening here until they remember everything that he said. And that's why he promised them that when the Holy Spirit would come, that the Holy Spirit would bring to mind that which Jesus Christ said, that they would remember it and that they would understand it. And so Jesus knew that as he left this earth, the disciples' days would be clouded in sorrow. In fact, we know that between the day that Jesus Christ died and the day the Comforter came was 50 days. Because Jesus Christ died on Passover and the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost 50 days later. So Jesus knew that there would be this time, nearly two months' time, of sorrow, confusion, not quite knowing what they were to do. But the Comforter would come. And when the Comforter came, Jesus Christ said that peace would come with him. Not a peace that the world gives. Not a peace that can pass away. but a peace that would last and endure, a peace that would keep their hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Four ways in which the Holy Spirit, the comforter that indwells you, gives you peace. Excuse me, gives you comfort. First is victory over sin. Second, Christ's sure return. Third, the comfort of present understanding. Fourth, true peace while Jesus tarries. And these four comforts are not simply luxuries of the human condition. They're not something that everyone gets. They are necessities of the human condition that not everyone gets. As we live our lives lovingly submitted to the Word of God, as we lovingly submit to service to Christ, these four comforts flood into our spirits keeping our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So as we close, let me ask you a few questions about your heart. Are you actively living as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have you counted the cost, according to Luke 14, and given all? Are you realizing these comforts that are yours by virtue of your salvation? They're yours if the Holy Spirit indwells you. Are you counting the rewards of righteousness of greater value than those of sin? Do you trust that you can attain unto these comforts if you will only obey the Word of God? Say, Pastor, why would you ask these questions in that manner? See, perhaps you are a follower of Jesus Christ in this room, a believer of Jesus Christ in this room, who is not realizing all of these comforts in your life. Perhaps you don't have the peace of God. Perhaps you don't have the assurance of His return. Maybe there's some fear, there's some trepidation there. Perhaps you're not finding victory over sin. Or perhaps you don't find that present understanding of God's Word. What would be the cause of a believer not receiving these comforts? The Scriptures speak to it in a couple of places. We won't go there this evening. But in Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians, Paul speaks of grieving the Spirit or quenching the Spirit. In other words, 
when we live in the flesh, as we talked about this morning in Sunday school, as opposed to living in the Spirit, we grieve the Spirit, we quench the Spirit, we do not allow the manifestations of the Spirit to make themselves real in our lives, and if the Holy Spirit is being quenched in our lives, how can His comforts be real in our lives? If we are quenching the Holy Spirit, how can He give us His comfort? If we are not living empowered by the Spirit of God, then how can we receive the benefits of the Spirit of God? It's not necessarily because these benefits aren't available, but because our disposition toward Christ is not allowing these benefits to reign in our hearts. And so I would encourage us as we close to search our hearts. Are there comforts of the Holy Spirit that you are not receiving today? Why is that? Search your heart. Ask the Spirit of God to search your heart. The psalmist prayed, Search me, O Lord. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's do the same this evening in our own hearts. Ask God to search us to know us, to try us, and to see if there be any wicked way in us.